Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 14 through 22. Paul writes, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation In the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If you were made aware that one of your friends was committing adultery, what would you say to them? How would you confront them? If a friend of yours knew that your spouse was cheating on you, what is it that you would want your friend to say to your spouse? Now just consider how horrible it would be if a week after a person was married, they began multiple adulterous relationships because they knew that their spouse, who happened to be a Christian, would not divorce them. And so because of their confidence in their spouse's commitment to the marriage, they they use that as an excuse to freely Pursue other relationships. And when confronted in their adultery, they pointed out how it demonstrated the amazing faithfulness and love of their spouse. That was their excuse. Look how faithful they are to me, despite all the things I do. Doesn't it exalt them? You would say that that person had a very twisted mind. And that their actions doesn't exalt their spouse. It demeans them in the most horrid way possible. And Paul in this passage before us today, like Nathan said centuries earlier, is saying to the Corinthians, Thou art the man. You are the man, Corinthians. You're the ones doing such in your relationship with God. Because you'll recall that the Corinthians thought that their baptism and their participation in the Lord's table gave them security for their sins. Paul addressed that uh, paragraphs earlier in this text. And what Paul draws out here is that 
if they are to continue in sin, namely to eat, uh, uh, participate in idolatrous sacrifices, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, that that is even worse than sinning as an unbeliever. To continue in sin and to take the elements of the Lord's table is even worse than just sinning as an unbeliever. Just as fornication before marriage is bad, but it's really bad after marriage. It's bad before marriage, but it's excessively bad afterwards. And so Paul wants to make this clear. And his argument goes as such. First, you have the command that's given in verse 14 to flee idolatry. And then in verses 15 through 22, he explains this command. He explains why they need to flee idolatry, why this doesn't work as a Christian. And he basically uses two arguments. He appeals to their participation in the Lord's table or communion. And then he appeals to what takes place in sacrifices. And then he closes with a warning in verse 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So really, everything that's going on here is about idolatry. Sorry, verse 22, I mentioned verse 14. 22 is, let's not provoke the Lord to jealousy. But what what are they jealous over? They're jealous over, I mean, what God's jealous over is their spiritual adultery, their idolatry. So it's all about idolatry. Let's look first at that command then. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. The command is the word fugo, from which we get the English word refugee. Now, the difference between an immigrant and a refugee is a refugee is fleeing a dangerous situation. Their life is in danger or their livelihood is in danger. Consider right now the immense dangers that are prompting millions of people to leave Syria and Iraq in order to come to Europe or other countries of the world. They flee because the danger of staying is so immense. And Paul is saying, you also need to flee idolatry. They should flee idolatry like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Consider how Paul exhorted the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians six fifteen through 20. And you'll notice how this passage parallels the passage we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 10. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ to make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now just to draw out some of the parallels. You have this command to flee. Flee idolatry, chapter 10. Flee sexual immorality. Chapter 6, there's this unity with the body of Christ in both chapters. 
Paul mentions in 10.23 and also in 6.12 the phrase, All things are helpful, but not all things are lawful. Or just the other way around. He also mentions in 10.31 and 6.20, Glorify God. Glorify God in your body. 1031, do everything to the glory of God. So these ideas are connected in Paul's mind because he realizes that the heart problem is actually the same getting manifested in two different ways. They lack faithfulness to Christ in their heart, which is what's leading them to participate in immorality as well as to participate in the table of demons. Now, this command to flee idolatry might initially sound strange to the Corinthians. They might say, well, we're not committing idolatry. We don't even believe in idols. We're celebrating our freedom in Christ. So Paul recognizes his need to explain what he's talking about. How are they committing idolatry? And this begins, his explanation begins in verse 15. He says, I speak... As to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul, by using this word sensible, he's saying, I'm I'm appealing to you as rational people, people who think. Remember the Corinthians prided themselves on their knowledge and wisdom, and he appeals to that. Recognize the spiritual implications of what you're doing. He begins his explanation, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul's argument again is that when they knowingly eat meat that is sacrificed to idols, they are participating in idolatry, spiritual adultery. And the first, the first way he explains this is in their understanding of the Lord's table. Now note the key word in this section is the word fellowship. Translated participation in the ESV. It comes up four times. Four times. And it's the word koinonia. It happens to be one of my very favorite Greek words because of all that it conveys. And, and simply put, koinonia, usually translated fellowship, means to share something in common with another person. That's a very simplified definition of it. It has massive other implications, but we'll, let's just stick with that. To share something in common with another. Now at the very beginning of the letter, the, the very introduction, Paul writes to the Corinthians and describes them as those who have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I draw that out because what it shows is the Corinthians are defined as those who are in fellowship with Christ. It defines their new nature as being Christians. They have fellowship with Christ. And a number of times already in the letter, he has emphasized that because they're one with Christ, what happens to them happens to Christ. When they engage in sexual immorality, they're bringing Christ along with them. When they insult and slander one another, they are tearing down Christ's body. So they have fellowship with Christ because they're united to Christ. And another way we have fellowship with Christ is when we participate in his work his work of evangelism seeing the gospel spread through every nation and in the building up of his body the church 
And I believe this is what Paul is touching on when he says in Philippians 3 that he desires to have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. He, want, he doesn't mind suffering for Christ because he knows he is fellowshipping with Christ even in suffering. The other kind of fellowship we have with Christ is that which we enjoy with one another. And Paul hints on at this in verse 17. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So what he's emphasizing is that the Lord's table is really a celebration of fellowship. The fellowship that we have with Christ and the fellowship that we enjoy as a church of believers throughout history and across the world. So there's really, again, just to summarize this, simplify it, the two kinds of fellowship that we celebrate in the Lord's table is the fellowship we have with Christ. And there's lots of ways we have fellowship with Christ. We um, enjoy the benefits of salvation. We also seek to be like him. He becomes our pattern. And so we have fellowship with him as we pursue the same kind of life he lived. We also belong exclusively to him. And that's one of the main emphasis here of our fellowship. We are his. And because we're his, we should only have fellowship with him and not with idols. It also celebrates the fellowship we enjoy together. We, that is all Christians, belong to Christ. And so we all belong to him. It's not just about this personal relationship, but this communal relationship. And all of us are united to him at the most fundamental level. And therefore, we're united at the most fundamental level. And think about that. What matters more to us than anything else is our relationship with Christ. That's true so the most fundamental thing to us is true about every single person who's a Christian. That's amazing. United in the most fundamental level. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's table, as we'll see. Both these dynamics of fellowship are symbolized in the partaking of communion. Christ established the Lord's table and instituted it as a sign of the new covenant. He mentions this. In Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that's poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. Now each of almost every of the uh, major covenants that God established with man, had a covenant sign. The rainbow was God's covenant sign with Noah. The uh, act of circumcision was the covenantal sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The Sabbath was the covenantal sign of the Mosaic covenant. And the covenantal sign of the new covenant is what Christ institutes here, the Lord's table. And so Jesus calls his followers to participate in the Lord's table to do this in memory of what he's going to do for them. Since his body would be broken like bread and his blood would be poured out as an atonement for sin, cleansing them and sanctifying them, they were to take these two elements in memoriam of what he will do for them in the new covenant. 
And Jesus was borrowing imagery here from old covenants, from the Old Testament. You might remember the covenant meal that Israel celebrated on Mount Sinai when God established the Mosaic covenant with Israel. In Exodus 24, remember what takes place. Beginning in verse 9, you have Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seven of the elders go up um, to Mount Sinai. And it says, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. They see God, the presence of God on the mountain. And they're surprised because they're not killed. It says in verse 11, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and notice, they ate and drank. What they ate and drank was the covenant meal. They ate the meat of the oxen that had been sacrificed, that had been offered up as a sacrifice, symbolizing the covenant they had with God. And immediately before this covenant meal, Moses sanctified the people through the blood of the oxen that they were offering up, just as Jesus sanctifies those in the new covenant with his blood. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken will do, will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Recognize that wording. That the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Jesus says at the Lord's table, in the upper room, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant which is being poured out for you. So Jesus institutes these two elements in order to recall his work, bread and wine. What Paul refers to as the cup of blessing and the bread that is broken. The cup of blessing is, uh, the, the word blessing is, which is the word eulageo, from where, which we get the word um, eulogy. And as translated, it means to bless or to ask God's blessing on something or to offer thanksgiving. It's um, also the word where the Roman Catholic term comes from, the Eucharist. The, the, the give, asking, giving thanks before partaking is what's being conveyed here. Now the blood of Christ, this blood that's being, uh, is, uh, being offered up in memoriam of Christ's sacrifice. And the cup represents this blood of the new covenant. And again, as just with the Mosaic covenant, blood has a sanctifying effect. Blood uh, symbolized the cleansing of Israel, that they could come into the presence of God. And then blood also sanctifies those who are in Christ permanently. And that's the main difference. So the people of Israel, they could be sanctified, they could be cleansed by the blood of a bull, goat, or oxen, but every time they sinned, they had to be sanctified again and again and again. But Christ's blood has a permanent effect. And Paul also notes in particular that because of this, it points to the permanent fellowship that gets established between us and Christ. We don't have broken fellowship with Christ because of his blood. It has a permanent effect. As he says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
So again, we have fellowship with Christ, participation with Christ, in that we enjoy the benefits of salvation, we seek to be like Him, and we belong to Him exclusively. And this is the same fellowship that gets expressed in the bread that we break. The bread that's broken. This refers to the sharing out of the bread. It's a, it's a common term that's used to refer to a covenant meal, a meal that's celebrated together. As Paul says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake in one bread. So they, they partake in a covenant meal together. It again, highlights the second kind of fellowship that we have. Fellowship with one another. So we have fellowship with Christ. Manifested in three different ways. Benefits of salvation. We seek to be like him and we belong to him exclusively. We also have fellowship with one another. We're all part of his body. That's why we all partake. It rep- the bread represents this unity we share. And that's why it was celebrated. You had one loaf and that one loaf was separated into various parts coming from one. Emphasizing the unity we have in Christ. Now, lest we miss the forest through the trees, we need to remember that Paul's point here is not to explain the Lord's table. In fact, he's just using the Lord's table as an illustration to communicate his main point. Well, what's his main point again? The reality that the Lord's table celebrates fellowship we have with Christ. When we participate in the Lord's table, we're participating in fellowship with Christ. It celebrates our union with Christ, just like an anniversary celebrates the union a man and a wife have together in marriage. Now, consider that and recall the parallels of chapter 10 with chapter 6. Another way to think about it is this. You can think of baptism as the marriage ceremony, the beginning of the relationship, the, the public affirmation that now you belong to christ you're his and then the lord's table is like an anniversary recalling again the fellowship that you have that began that the day you committed your life to christ so when you take the lord's table think of it in terms of like a renewal of your vows i really like the wedding vows from the 1662 book of common prayer The bride is asked, will thou obey him and serve him, love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other, keep thee only unto him so long as you both shall live. That's the same kind of fellowship, same kind of vows that we take when we seek to commit our life to Christ in baptism, in which we express in the celebration of the Lord's table. To obey him, serve, love, honor, in sickness, health, forsaking all others forever. And so Paul is using their understanding of the Lord's table in order to make a point, again, that intimate fellowship has taken place in the relationship with the believer in Christ. But this, just is, this isn't just the case in the Lord's table. There's also fellowship accomplished in Old Testament sacrificial offerings. Consider the people of Israel, Paul says in verse 18. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, fellowshippers in the altar? 
So again, the use of a meal to symbolize fellowship has a long history in the Bible and in history, even ancient history. And in the Old Testament, several times the eating of a meal corresponds to um, feast days, worship days on the Old Testament calendar. When they would celebrate a significant event, they had a feast. You have Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Leviticus 23, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpet, the Feast of Booths. And again, part of the symbolism was taking place is they, uh, it's the fellowship they have with God now that they've been set apart with Him. Likewise, the 12 cakes which were on the table of showbread in the tabernacle, which were eaten on the Sabbath by Aaron and his sons, represent the fellowship between God and His redeemed. So, these meals demonstrate fellowship with God. And Christ is just symbolizing that when He institutes the Lord's table. Because a shared meal was a common way of sealing a covenant. It's a way of showing we're not against each other anymore. We're united. Any kind of covenant that was made, even a a military covenant, often corresponded with a meal of generals taking it together. And a person, when they ate the covenant meal or a sacrificial meal, would have an animal that's offered up as a sacrifice and as an offering, and then the meat of that animal was consumed by the offers, applying the benefits of that offering to them. So Paul's point is, if it's true that fellowship takes place in the Lord's table, and in some sense there's participation in the offering that gets offered up that you consume, you're asking the benefits of that sacrifice to be applied to you, so if there's fellowship, there's some participation in the sacrifice being offered also, then why is it, Corinthians, that you presume that it's okay for you to participate in food that's been sacrificed to idols? Doesn't that have spiritual implications also? Now the Corinthians might respond, well, yeah, Paul, but idols aren't real. There's no such thing as an idol. There's wood and stone. But again, this would be like a husband saying, That he's free to engage in physical intimacy with other women because he recognizes that in his heart that the only physical intimacy that really counts is intimacy with his wife. I really know in my heart that all that really counts is physical intimacy with my wife. So I'm free to go engage in other relationships as well. That's the logic that the Corinthians are using. Well, it's nonsensical. That's Paul's point. You can't have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with demons. And that's where he goes next. Verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offers to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Of course, you can can see that the question they might ask, are you saying that an idol is real, Paul? He says, no. No. But the demons behind those idols are real. Demons are real. And the idols represent demons. As he says in verse 20, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be fellowshippers with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
So again, this is stating the obvious. What a pagan offers up in sacrifice, he's not offering up to God. He's offering it up to a demon. And therefore, how could a Christian willfully participate and give thanks? He can't, is the point. Just as a wife cannot be a faithful wife and commit adultery. Christians cannot participate willfully in eating meat sacrificed to idols. It is spiritual adultery. It's idolatry. And so in summary, again, the command is flee idolatry. Have nothing to do with it. You belong to Christ exclusively. Don't toy with idolatry in the least. And his explanation is, because you have fellowship with Christ, you've been united to Christ, you're his. As is represented in the Lord's table, as is represented in covenant meals, in Old Testament sacrifices, and as you know what takes place in a sacrifice is offered up to a demon. Fellowship. If you're Christ, you can't have fellowship with demons. And so this then brings him to his warning. You don't want to provoke the jealousy of God. And that's the danger in idolatry. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now notice, Paul's not concerned about demonic influence. The danger that demons might present to Christians. Paul's not worried about what the demons might do to them but what God might do. Think about that. And also hear the strength of the warning. Are we stronger than he? What is God assuming God, I'm sorry, what is Paul assuming God is going to do with this strength? The phrase provoke the Lord to jealousy is taken from Deuteronomy 32 Again, in reference to idolatry. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 32, 21, where God says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. God is angry. And he is the last person you want angry at you. And you can understand why he'd be more angry with adulterous Israel or an adulterous Christian than he would be with somebody who's outside a relationship with him. Spiritual adultery fuels God's anger is the point. Paul says, recognize that. Don't use the gospel as an excuse for spiritual adultery. I've been reading through um, the book of Hosea in my morning time with God. And this is the repeated theme in Hosea. And I was stunned by what God says he will do to Israel when they provoked his jealousy by participating in idolatry. If you want to read along with me, I'll be um, reading in chapter 2, beginning at verse 2 of Hosea. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. That she put her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Again, he's speaking of Israel. 
lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my fool, my, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Therefore, I'll hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I'll go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now recognize God has no problem calling a spade a spade. Or to use his language, a whore a whore. And yet, he also makes so clear in the book of Hosea, if Israel seeks to repent from their sins, seeks to draw back to God, forsakes their idols, comes to him, he will abundantly pardon. He says this in chapter 5. For I will be a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. It's describing judgment. I even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Then in the next verse, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. So what's God? What does God want? He wants them to come back to him. He doesn't want them to play the part of an adulteress. But to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, all their mind, with all their strength. And when we get baptized and when we participate in the Lord's table, we're saying, everything about me is yours, God. I have no other lovers, spiritually speaking, besides you. And that's, that's what God wants from us. As Paul says early in 1 Corinthians 10. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. What was the language he used? Going back to 1 Corinthians 10 that we saw last week. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. His point is, don't follow your cravings. Don't follow these things that are tempting you to idolatry. Resist them, firm in your faith, understanding God will take care of you. Don't go running after these other lovers. Trust in God, remain faithful to God. He is faithful and will help you. Don't participate in idolatry. 
Now, in our culture, we're not under the same sort of temptation the Corinthians faced. I doubt any of us have been tempted to eat meat sacrificed to idols recently. So how does this apply to us? Well, I think four things come to mind. First and foremost, the obvious, flee idolatry. The gospel does not give us freedom to worship anything but Christ. Any more than a marriage gives somebody freedom to commit adultery. So if something is stealing your heart and your affections, your identity, your, your, where you find your value, it needs to be repented of. If you don't repent, that's the warning is applied to you. There will be massive ramifications. As James says in James 4, 4 through 5, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Recognize the connection. Friendship with the world adulterous people. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't exalt God in his grace. It disgraces God. Or do you not suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. God is jealous of us. As 1 John 5.12 says, John concludes all of 1 John. The the last words he says in his letter of 1 John is he says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. What's he talking about? It's the first time idolatry comes up in the the book. Well, he's drawing on what he said in 1 John 2.16. Do not love the world, all the things in the world, the lust of The flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the Corinthians were literally pursuing the lust of the flesh. Lust of meat. Sacrifice to idols. Secondly, second application, the gospel does not give us freedom to violate our conscience. We're not free to participate in any sinful practice. We're not. We don't have that freedom. Our We are free to worship Christ with our life. That's the freedom that we've been given. To be free from our sin. To indulge in any sinful practice is to slap God in the face. Thirdly, although this text is not primarily about communion and the Lord's table, it does remind us, it does demonstrate some of the significance of the Lord's table. We need to recognize that when we partake of the bread and the cup, we're recalling the unity that we have with Christ. We share fellowship together with them. And not only that, we share fellowship with one another. Christianity is not just about us as individuals pursuing Christ. We pursue Christ together. Christianity is about a communal relationship. It's a, you're a part of the church So when you get saved, it's not just about you in your personal relationship with God, though there is a relationship there. It primarily gets expressed in your participation in the body of Christ. And that's what's, again, demonstrated in the breaking of the bread. Fourthly, Paul's main application. Oops. Bummer. 
Oh, well. Fourth application, you probably saw it, is what we saw from the preceding section, which we looked at last week. You don't have to fall away when you're tempted. You don't have to fall away. God is faithful if you draw near to him and cling to him in faith. You will be sustained. You don't have to follow your cravings. If you're faithful to God and trust in him, you will enjoy the blessings of fellowship with him. However, if you are unfaithful, God will play the part of a jealous husband. Let's pray. God, the last thing we want to do is to dishonor you for the amazing grace that you've demonstrated to us. Not just in our salvation, but the amazing grace that you continue to provide for us everything we need. Just as, the, as you provided for Israel wool and flax so that they would be covered. You gave them silver and gold that they could be honored. And yet they worshipped filth rather than worship you. We don't want to follow their pattern. We want to follow the pattern of Christ. We want to have fellowship with Christ. And we want to have fellowship with one another as we have fellowship with Christ. And so I pray that you would continue to enrich our awareness of the fellowship that we do enjoy with you. And you would increase our revulsion to idolatry and all the temptations that this world tries to allure us with, that we would not participate in the work of demons at any level, that we would play the part of zealous, faithful spouses that love you with all of our heart. Guard us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.